indeed working on a series called The Message of the Cross. And today, uh, our passage is from Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12 verses 1 to 3. If you want to follow along, there's Bibles around you, but the the text will be behind me. Hebrews 12 verse 1. Uh, Let me read it to you. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. This is God's word to us. And maybe you saw the title of the topic today in the news sheet. Uh, You're seeing it behind me right now. Shame. What a joyous topic. I know. Uh, Very easy to talk about when it's other people's shame. Really awkward when it's your own, isn't it? And I have a fear here that I'm going to talk about shame, I'm going to talk about the cross, and that both will be theoretical. Uh, It will be either other people or it will be Jesus on a distant cross, and it will not be you. Uh, I have been praying that the Holy Spirit will apply this to all of our lives because it is for all of our lives. And I really want us to to lean into this. Uh, You know your heart. You know your shame. Hear me, I don't, uh, but God does. Every single thing. Every single thing. And he leans into you. He, in fact, does far more than lean. But our passage today from Hebrews 12 says, For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame. You know what? You could use a lot of description words to describe the cross, what happened on the cross. But here the author of Hebrews chooses this particular one, shame. And it is important. It's important for us to understand it and to understand how significant it is that Jesus scorned that shame. And here is a dictionary definition of shame. Shame is a painful emotion caused by consciousness of guilt, shortcoming, or impropriety. Uh, You know what? If that's not the words we would have known or would have used, we still know what shame feels like. We all do. It usually comes from an awareness of our lack or our guilt. Yes, we might describe it as embarrassment, but actually it's more than that. Oh, it is stronger than that. It is linked to our value that we feel less when we are shamed. It is linked to our pride because we feel less. We do. And I want to be clear, sometimes, probably most of the time, we feel shame uh, actually because we have done something wrong. Probably most of the time. But sometimes shame can also be put upon us by others when we've done nothing wrong. And this is a reality. Uh, People will say things about us. Our culture will put things upon us. We haven't done anything specifically wrong 
but they will demean us as less and cause shame in our lives. And this is tricky because we have to work out what shame we're dealing with, and I want to acknowledge that up front. Most of the time, though, uh, we actually should feel shame about things. When we do something wrong, feeling shame is actually right. It's not right to feel shameless, to feel no shame over things. But on the other hand, it is not right to feel shame when we have done nothing wrong. And yet this is the reality of the world we live in, and we've got to navigate between these. I want to give a picture, a biblical picture, uh, from four people in the Bible, and one not in the Bible as well, which we'll get to in a moment, but four people who all dealt with shame and hopefully helped flesh out our understanding of shame. Maybe we can see a little bit of ourselves in it, but particularly I want to see you to see a common uh, reaction to shame. And the first example, not surprisingly, is Adam and Eve, because they are literally the first example. Uh, in Genesis 3, they sin against God, and immediately their eyes are open to the fact that they are naked. And it's not so much that they're naked, but they are embarrassed, they are ashamed, something is wrong with them. And what do they do? They try and make clothes for themselves. Uh, but it's more than just that because this is, this is sort of exaggerated, that when God comes to find them, again, God is seeking them out. He absolutely knows what has happened. He comes seeking them out, and he comes calling to them. Where are you? And where were they? Well, they were hiding. They were hiding because they were ashamed. A second example, King David from 2 Samuel 11 uh, uh, King David is quite rightly held up most of the time as a good example of someone who knew God because he really knew God. He's described as a man who had a heart for God. And yet in this incident in his life, he commits adultery. And then in trying to cover it up, he kills a man. He kills Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. Again, he is trying to hide from God. Now, how well does that ever work? Never, ever works. Never, ever works. And indeed, God pursues David, pursues him. Indeed, confronts him with what he has done, brings the sin right before him, that it is not hidden from God. It might be hidden from other people, but it's not hidden from God. And David repents. Or what about the woman at the well? In John 4, we're, we're given this uh, example of a, a woman, a Samaritan woman that Jesus meets there at this well. And he starts a conversation with her. And she recognizes that he is a prophet from God. And you know what? If you recognize someone's a prophet from God, you should probably be a little cautious because what do they know? Anyway, she talks about many issues around worship and where to worship. Should we worship on this mountain or that mountain? Uh, but she keeps quiet about herself, that she has had multiple husbands. But Jesus knows this. He knows it. Although no one's told her, he knows it. And he pushes this point with her. He, he raises it before her. And you could imagine the shame. And yet, he is reaching out for her. He is seeking her. And if you know the rest of the story, she comes to faith in him. 
She does. And in fact, brings other people to him. What about the hemorrhaging woman in Luke 8? This is a woman who, uh, through no action of her own, has been suffering from hemorrhaging, bleeding for many years. And after trying everything else and living with the shame of this condition for all those years, a shame that would segregate her from other people, she hears of Jesus and she has some faith, she has some hope in him, maybe he can help me. Maybe he can heal me. And she goes seeking him out in amongst the crowd, if you know the story, and she manages to touch his robe. And she is healed right there and then. And in this strange moment, Jesus is aware that he's healed someone. That, As it's said in the, the passage, power has gone out from him. But he doesn't stop there. He seeks her out. He he wants to know who it is. Who came to him with faith? And so he seeks this woman out. We need to stop everything. Who was it? I want to know. I want to know. And he rejoices in her faith and the fact that she is healed. All these examples are witnesses to us of people who had faith. These are people who all all have sinned or are suffering in some way from shame. But in faith, they approach God, they trust God, they approach Jesus, and we are meant to learn from them. We read from Hebrews chapter 12 today, but Hebrews chapter 11 is a huge list of people who had faith. People we could add these people to as well. They are examples of people who looked to God in their need, and trusted him, and he met them. Well, I said I wanted to give you one more example, not from the Bible. Uh, This is George Mueller. He's a bit of a a favorite of mine. Uh, George Mueller is best known for running orphanages. Uh, In his life, it's estimated that he housed about, or more, sorry, than 10,000 orphans, which is 10,000 more than I've housed, Let's be honest. And it's amazing, isn't it? That figure just sort of slips past us. But think about that. 10,000 orphans. But actually what's most amazing about it is sort of the way he did it. George never asked for money. He would not ask for money for anyone. He prayed to God and then he trusted God that God would provide. And he did that for a very intentional reason. He wanted God to get the glory. This was not George providing for these orphans. It was God providing for these orphans. George was just being faithful. What's ironic about this is that at the start of his life, uh, George was a liar and a thief. Uh, He stole from everyone and anyone. And I'm not exaggerating there. He stole from his parents. Uh, In fact, there's a funny story of his father being suspicious of his son George and leaving a pile of coins in the room with George and then going out of the room and returning later to find George there, but the money not. Uh, George had hidden it in his shoe, actually. They got into a big argument about that. Uh, As you can imagine, George carried on stealing from his dad. Uh, George stole from his friends. Uh, He went on lots of trips with his friends, and they often entrusted him to hold their money, uh, and he would just siphon some away for himself. What a friend, eh? Uh, But he would steal from anyone. There's stories of him going to hotels to stay the night uh, and then just running away (laughs) without paying his bills. Uh, He would really steal from anyone. 
uh, if it benefited him. And yet, yet, this is the man who came to faith in God and who would trust God and that God would provide what he needed to do God's work. And he went on to house this many orphans. George Mueller's shame was real. His sin was real. His shame was real. Ah, but his faith in a God who was greater than his sin and shame was also real. Ah, wonderfully real. And that's the reality he lived in. Mueller got the message of the cross. That's what I hope we will. Whatever our sin, whatever our shame, the things we would tell no one else, no one. God already knows. He already knows, and he will deal with it. He has dealt with it. The verse I read out from Hebrews 2 was that Jesus scorned the shame of the cross. Other translations say he despised it. And I want us to lean into that for a moment. What what does that mean, that he scorned it or he despised it? And I'm going to give a few things. I think there's a lot more to it here. But as I said, I fear that this will be theoretical. I mean, we all know our shame. We know that's not theoretical. But do we know Jesus' shame, the shame of the cross? Here is a man who's falsely arrested. That's a terrible thing for anyone. But let's just remember uh, who he is. He is God on earth. He is the judge of everyone. And he's been arrested. He's been put in chains. He's been accused, accused of being a blasphemer. His creation are convicting him. And maybe that might seem like, well, Jesus should just shrug that off then. It's not true. No, they are diminishing him. They are attacking his identity, aren't they? They are making him less. Here is a man who is abandoned by his friends. Maybe that seems like a light thing. He's traveled with these guys for the last three years, and yet, in his moment of need, they all run. And in fact, one of his closest friends denies him three times. Now, Jesus knew this denial from Peter was coming, but honestly, if someone denies you, that's going to hurt, isn't it? You're going to be alone. You're going to feel like less. Here is a man... God on earth, he's come to his own people, the Jewish nation. They knew him better than anyone else. They had his law, they had a history with him, they had stories of him, and yet these are the people crying out about Jesus, crucify him, crucify him. I mean, it's one thing to say, I don't like you. It's another thing to say, kill him. Kill him, get rid of him. And this is what Jesus took on the cross. Here is a man who is stripped naked, Many people have been stripped naked. But here is the one who was around when God made clothes for Adam and Eve, and he is stripped naked. He is displayed for people to be disgusted at. His creation looked down on their creator. Here is a man who is humiliated and mocked. That is, the soldiers struck him and mocked him, teasing him to prophesy about which one of them it was who struck him. And the people at the cross ridiculed him, claiming that if he was really the son of God, able to rebuild the temple in three days, then just come down off the cross then. Come on. 
Surely you've got this then, Jesus. Here is a man who is abused, not just verbally. He's physically abused. He is tortured. Tortured. And here is a man who is killed. The giver of all life is put in the ground. This is his shame. This is his shame, and it, we can sort of know, well, that makes it bigger than my shame, makes it bigger than your shame, makes it bigger than all of our shame, but that's not quite getting the point because we're told he scorned the shame of the cross. He despised it. God knows you. You can't hide you can't. We can't hide, can we? He sees you. He sees everything about you. And yet here, here he would go to the cross still. Knowing your sin and shame, he would go to the cross still and he would scorn it. As, as weighty as that list was, that list, he would scorn it to seek you, to save you, knowing everything that you would tell no one, he would bear it to draw closer to you. He sees everything, knows everything about you, and he still draws closer. In one sense, that should be horrifying, it should be terrifying that that he knows my shame. None of it is hidden from him. And yet he knows it and doesn't look away. He doesn't look away. In fact, he does more than that. He leans in and bears it for us. My shame, like my sin, is real. It's real. I have things I have done. It doesn't get the final word, though. And that's true of us all. God will not give our sin the final word. He is willing to bear it. He will scorn and despise the shame of the cross to bear it. We might give people snapshots of our lives. God doesn't have a snapshot. He knows it all. He knows the sins we are yet to do. And he doesn't look away. He doesn't ignore us. He doesn't write us off. He leans in. He's always been the God seeking us out. Your shame is real, but the cross is greater. And as Heather said this morning, so often our shame and our sin seem so real to us, and we have to go back to God, back to his word, and remind ourselves of it. Yes, we have a past, but it is not our future. In Matthew 22, Jesus tells a parable about a wedding banquet, a great thing, a huge banquet. And in this parable, the wedding banquet is the kingdom of God. And many are invited to come to this wedding banquet, but many of them don't come. And Jesus is making a point to the Jews listening to him, you have been invited and many of you aren't coming. And so in the parable, 
the invitation is spread. It goes out to everyone else. It goes out effectively to everyone else, to the Gentiles. In the parable, though, they're actually described as the people who are bad, but they are invited as well. For all of their sin, for all of their shame, they are invited. It's a wonderful picture of what Jesus was to do on the cross and inaugurate. But the parable ends on a strange note. In the parable, there is a man who is found at the wedding banquet, and he he doesn't have the proper clothes on for a wedding banquet. Seems quite petty. But he's ejected. He is thrown out. And the point of it is that yes, yes, the invitation is broad, it is wide, it is to us all, but we must come clothed in Christ. We do not come in our own righteousness because otherwise we will not belong. We're given a picture of this in Revelation chapter 7 where we're described again of God's kingdom that there will be a great multitude from every nation, hear that, every nation, worshipping God and they are dressed in White robes, they're pure, they belong there. Their nakedness and their shame is covered. And one of the elders asks the question for us, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? And then he answers the question, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation, life hasn't been easy, they have washed their robes and made them white, in the blood of the Lamb, in Jesus' blood. Therefore, they are before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's the only way we get in, the only way we stay in. If Jesus' righteousness clothes us, but it clothes us completely, that yes, you and I can be before the throne of God. You and I will be clothed, our shame will be covered, whatever it is, and we can worship before him and belong there and he will care for us, wiping every tear away, indeed guarding us. I said at the start, I fear that this will be theoretical. And I sort of hate to say it, but do you get our sister Claire has entered this? This is real. That despite her sin, she is clothed. She belongs And she will never, never, ever be kicked out. She is God's. He sought her, he found her, and claimed her for himself. And this is us. And if you know Claire, you know her life was not easy. She had tribulations. Is that fear? That is fear. You are going to have tribulations. I will have tribulations. And this is why Hebrews calls us to run to get running, to throw off the hindrances, the things that don't belong, to get rid of the entangling to sins. Yes, to expect opposition in this world. 
because we are following Jesus. And come what may, we are his. We are his. Don't lose hope. Don't lose heart. Your home awaits you. Your joy will be fulfilled. Let's pray together. Almighty God, you know everything about us. Every single thing. Nothing is hidden from you. And oh Lord, we confess, we don't want to tell other people, but before you, we will be honest. We will. We try and hide these things and and it's exhausting. It's exhausting to carry these things But, oh, Lord, before you, we lay these things, the shame that we have carried at your feet. We lay it there because you know it anyway. And we say in thankfulness, take it. Take us that we can run in this life, a life of faith, a life of pursuing you. And Lord, we know that there will be tribulations. We know that there will be hardship because this world is not an easy world to live in. Oh Lord, it's not right. We still have bodies of sin yet. We still have natures of sin, but we look to you. We pray, Lord, that we would throw off those things that hinder us, that don't belong. Those sins that are entangling our lives, Lord. We want to get rid of them. We want to pursue you. Because you are our joy. We want you to be our joy. And we know so often in our life we find other joys. And they never satisfy. They never last, Lord. But oh, that you would be our joy. You would be our life. That we would indeed lead lives of faith before you. Indeed, until we see you face to face. Lord, we are so thankful for the hope that we have in you. I pray for all of us, open our eyes that when we start to rest on ourselves, rest on our own goodness, that you would shake us awake. You would remind us, O Lord, that you know us inside and out and you have sought us out for yourself, that you have washed us and that we are yours. I pray this in the name of your Son, our Saviour. Amen.